Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie, PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. Thanks for having me. All righty, so uh, let's let's go right to it here. You've been the great um, proponent of the BioBot sewage uh, testing where do we stand? What are you finding right now in the sewage water? Over the last month, the amount of virus we're seeing is about the same. It hasn't really gone up or down. And during that time, we had an increase in cases, a lot of which were related to the nursing home outbreaks, and that is now coming down. And I think what the sewage numbers tell us is that we're doing an okay job of keeping it from spreading. So the masks and the distancing and the avoiding large gatherings, as well as the testing that we're doing and then the contact tracing, which helps keep it from spreading once you identify a case, all of that taken together is really keeping us from having an explosion of cases. It's not making it go away yet, but it's actually keeping it from getting worse. Um, I want to see the sewage numbers go down because that means there are fewer people with the virus in the county. And I haven't seen that yet. But I think that will take, I, I think it will take much more expanded testing so that more people who wanna get a test can go in and get a test and get a result quickly. Because if you have to wait many days, it's not very helpful. Although I will say that it seems that the turnaround times are getting much better in the last couple of weeks. So. I'm thinking that the commercial labs are doing a better job. But again, I think we need to have more testing available for people who want to be tested because if we can find people who are positive, we can quarantine their contacts, isolate them, it stops spreading, fewer people get it, it makes it easier for people to get out and go to restaurants and do the things that they want to do. What what is the uh what is the delay of testing that's that's acceptable. I mean, can you handle 48 to 72 hours, but after that, it, it's not very helpful? 72 hours is really the outside of being useful. Okay. The reason is that most people that we're testing are negative. But if you're being tested for possibly having coronavirus, you really shouldn't be around other people because if you have it, you can spread it. So the faster we can get results, the better. Um, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to get these tests back in 24 to 48 hours consistently. And I think part of the problem is that we're primarily using the commercial labs. They don't really have an incentive to do a 24 hour, 48 hour turnaround time because they get paid the same amount no matter what. And it would require them to invest in a lot more test equipment and technicians when they didn't know three months ago that they were gonna need that much. So I think the expansion with should be both them and the Bureau of Labs and other testing sites and maybe research medical centers to help fill in those gaps so that we can, if someone wants to know, for example, with schools, if, if people in a school district or a school were concerned that there might be cases around, they could arrange to get tested. That would be very helpful. Talk about testing asymptomatic. I, I know that the, the major health uh, concerns here in town, they, they still need, they need you to have some symptoms. They need, they need it to be somewhat probable before you get a test. 
but it isn't the isn't the real um, the real money part of this thing isn't isn't the real uh, success come wouldn't that come with we if we can just test uh, do some more surveillance testing? Yes, in fact, younger people tend to be more likely to either have very mild symptoms or none. Like the college students who are being tested, a lot of them are asymptomatic. And so they're the ones who are spreading it. So yes, we should be identifying people who are asymptomatic because asymptomatic people can clearly spread it and someone can pick it up from them. And if they're older, like we are, they could get sick or, or very sick. So the fact that a young person doesn't have symptoms doesn't mean they can't make their parent or grandparent or teacher symptomatic and sick. So yes, we should be doing more asymptomatic testing. What's your take on the low PCR positivity rate in your county? We're down to like 2.5% now. That is a very good sign. It means that we are testing reasonably and we are not missing lots and lots of cases. The, from what I've gathered from the state website, it appears that the number of tests being done in Erie seems to be roughly about the same. So it's not like we're doing a lot fewer tests. Right. And since we're not doing a lot fewer tests, if we're finding fewer people using those same guidelines for you know, suspected cases, then it means that we're not having as many. And that's a good thing. But again, we're still missing the, the iceberg of all the asymptomatic people who are infected because it's harder to get that test done. All right. I want, I want, you, I want you to talk to the Dr. Howard Nadwarney of uh, 2009 dealing with H1N1 or what have you, bird flu or whatever was the yes. case back then. When you think about, you know, having, what did we have last month, last week? We had 53 cases of, of a yes. pandemic uh, and, and, uh, and we did a couple thousand tests and we had a two and a half percent positivity rate. Would would 2009 Dr. Warney be alarmed at all about this virus? Um, yes, because, well, there, there's a big difference between influenza and coronavirus. In 2009, we were seeing lots of cases, but they turned out to be primarily in young people and certain people with underlying conditions but it actually turned out not to infect people over the age of 60 as much because this strain was actually a relative of a strain that had been circulating in the 1940s. So older Americans were in fact immune. Coronavirus is different because nobody over the age of 65 is really immune. So you, and you're more likely to get severely ill and die the older you are. We also know that this virus, unlike flu, can cause heart inflammation and chronic lung inflammation, which is not really characteristic of influenza. So it's a different virus and it's those long-term issues that are increasingly being reported that concern me. Is If this was just either you got sick or you got over it, it would be different. But we now are learning that even if you're not very sick, you can have heart inflammation, myocarditis, and end up with heart dysfunction that can last for months and maybe even longer. And that's even in mildly ill people. Where, interestingly, there was a study in, from Ohio State that looked at 
MRI, cardiac MRI scans in athletes. And I think they had reported that about 15% of them had evidence of heart inflammation, even though they were not sick. Um, I haven't been able to find that study. It apparently has been suppressed. Interesting. So, yeah. And so I'm concerned that if we were to look harder, we might find more issues. So that's what concerns me about this virus. Yeah. The, um, well, the the idea that it, it is a it is a brand new that novel coronavirus seems to be the the trigger. I, while you're on that subject, though, I want to ask about the 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 lung inflammation and this thought of maybe you know heavy duty steroids early on, kind of attacking these chronic cases. Uh, what are you seeing about that? This there was a study done of using dexamethasone for coronavirus. And it turned out that if you gave it when someone was quite sick, it had a survival and health benefit. So people did better getting dexamethasone. And actually it was a fairly low dose, but it also turned out that when it was given early before people got very sick, they did worse than oh. if they didn't get it. Okay. So, so yes, instead of giving it early to everyone, it doesn't work. It works worse if you give it early. And in fact, we have a problem because we don't really have a good treatment for this coronavirus early. So for example, if you got exposed and got infected and you said to me, what can I take to keep from getting sicker? I don't really have anything that we found will work. Remdesivir is an antiviral and might work early, but it's intravenous. So until someone develops a pill form of it or some related drug that can be taken by mouth, we don't really have much to do to make you less likely to get sick. All right. I got to ask, I got to ask guy. you though, but I got to ask you about the Yale guy, the Yale public health doc who said in Newsweek that if you catch it super early, the hydroxychloroquine with the Z pack and the zinc uh, is, can be effective. Are you totally proofing that? Yes, I don't know if it was a Yale doctor, but it, it's not true. The studies that have looked at it have shown that it didn't work. And the studies compared using it to not using it. So they had a comparison group and there wasn't any difference. There's actually been about six studies showing hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. There's one study from Michigan that suggested that it did, but, the, but basically the, the information primarily suggests it doesn't work if you take it early. The problem with saying, oh, yes, if you take it, you'll get better, is most people get better. It's like right. most things. Yeah, because so, you said 90% of the people have a mild case, 7 to 10 days, and they are feeling better. But it knocks them out for a bit. Yeah, it's clear that there's a number of people who, when you get symptomatic, it takes weeks and months to get over it. Wow. Not a good thing. No. Dr. Howard Nadwarney is our guest here and uh, no phones right now because he's on the Zoom. I, I, Doc, you've you've seen what's happened at the big universities where there's outbreaks. They've even sent sick kids home. Now, what's in your opinion is the best practice? I would think that you would want to have those kids under control and in isolation. Oh, Joel, having those kids under control. That's a great statement. Yeah, that, that is kind of Pollyannish, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, actually, in thinking about colleges reopening, 
I had thought that the ones that would be most likely to succeed would be those who had a smaller self-contained campus where they could screen and test frequently so that they knew people weren't infected and they didn't go into town and go to parties where they interacted with other people because they could be their own bubble. And I suspect that there are colleges, smaller ones, that have succeeded in doing that. But when you have a big university and they are in a city and kids are used to going into town and hanging out and going to bars, expecting them to be senior adults is not realistic. And I think that's what we're finding is if you look, you find lots of cases and it spreads fairly quickly because it's very hard for kids to be socially distant on, on college campuses. Yeah. The, uh, the, the colleges do seem to be able to do some more surveillance. They're, they're, you know, they're testing 1% of their uh, student body every week and so on. Uh, I mean, that is, that is, you know, toward the right direction, I would think. Well, that's probably not a lot enough people, but the University of Illinois, for example, is testing all their students at least once a week. And in fact, yes, because they are associated with a research university. So they developed an in-house test, which allows them to test 30,000 kids every week. And in fact, they had expected with their plan that they would find fewer than a thousand positives for the semester. And they got, they have gotten to 700 within one week. (laughs) Showing you that kids want to be social with each other. And so they actually have locked down the school for two weeks, hoping they can break that cycle. And yeah, it's very hard. It's actually part of the problem is if we had a lot less COVID around the entire United States, opening up colleges probably would have worked much better. But, you know, it's been out of control for the last six months. And so you have students coming from all over where there are hot spots, and it's not surprising that they're bringing it with them, even though they're not sick. So the idea of opening colleges sounded good, but when you're doing it in, in the middle of a big outbreak, it's impossible unless you can make a bubble. And I don't know how a place like Penn State or the University of Michigan or Illinois or Georgia or Florida can do that. Yeah, it's going to have to be the smaller ones. Uh, let, let's talk about, um, as we go forward here, what uh, what are the things that are, uh, are what are you looking at? What are the things that you're going to be concerned about? Um, are, first off, are you concerned about a second wave? Again, every, every epidemiologist has that John Barry book in the back of their head of saying, you know, in the great influenza, the second wave was so much worse than the first. Are we up for that? Um, I don't think that we will have a second wave worse than the first, although I'm not sure if it's proper to talk about waves, because in a sense, we already got into the second wave. The first wave happened in New York and New Jersey and Washington and California, and then the second wave really exploded through the south, and now the third wave is expanding in the Midwest and in rural areas, so it's not we, it's not really right to talk about waves. This virus spreads by close contact. I think if you are in places where you haven't had many cases and you think it, you've escaped it, so you don't take precautions, it will show up and it will spread. So I think that's what we're seeing. Um, 
I think it will worsen in the fall as more people go indoors and with schools open, I'm afraid that it will get worse. So I think that increasing our testing and having people continue to do the same annoying wearing masks and socially distancing and trying to avoid large crowds will work because that's how it spreads. It's, it doesn't know any different. It's just doing what people allow it to do. I am concerned about influenza coming in and usually we get it in late December, January and February. I think if people were to wear masks and socially distance in flu season, we will have a very mild flu season because that will work for flu as well as COVID. But if people let their guard down and say, oh, I'm tired of wearing a mask and I'm tired of following precautions, then my worry is not only will we see COVID, but we'll see a lot of flu. Yeah, I would, so, I would think with masks, I mean, you would – you would stop droplets uh, like like nobody's business. Uh, I got I got to wrap up here in the next two minutes here. Uh, Erie County itself right now low incidence, even uh, low incidence of community spread. Or right now we're marked as moderate. What's your take? I think we have been consistently doing better over the past month. I think our rates are going down. I think people are doing a really good job of following the guidelines and being careful. And I think that it is showing clear benefit. I think if we could expand availability of testing as well as getting faster results so more people could get tested, we can actually drive that rate much lower and stay away from any next wave or worsening. No, I think we're doing a very reasonable job. I think things are getting better. I am concerned because it's still there. We're still seeing regular numbers of cases. Um, and we still are sort of in the yellow zone in terms of numbers, but we're clearly not seeing surges. So in that sense, Erie, by its behavior and its maturity, is avoiding what's happened in most other places. And that's a really good sign. You're, you're, you're asking for a very simple thing. You're just saying more people need to get tested. What do we need to do to, to accomplish that? Because it seems to me that the goal is to eradicate the virus, and you do that by knowing if you have it and so you can isolate. I don't know exactly what we need to do to have that increase, but I think that – I know that people are working on it. I know that that issue is being brought up, so whether that's organized on the state level or whether that's – coordinated through the commercial labs. I don't yet know. It, we just don't have a big research university here that we could turn to and say, can you develop your own test and we'll send it all to you. The Bureau of Labs might be able to provide that through the state if we can set up an infrastructure. So perhaps that's something that we can work on here. Maybe we need to get that antigen, you know, the spit uh, deal, uh, something that, to make it quick. I would... I would like to see that test validated in the real world. That that uh, so that rapid antigen test got approved based on I think 105 samples. Oh, gee. So it'd be real. So it'd be really nice to have someone use it in the real world and compare it to PCR and find out how it really works with real normal people in a real world setting first before we send 50 million of them around the country. But it could be helpful too. So yes. I would be interested in anything that would help me find out cases better. 
Dr. Howard Nad, warning, I know you have to go to uh, your next event. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and expertise. Thanks for having me, Joel. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com.